Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, this is Adrian Hernandez from NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds. And today we're here with Michael Gibson, who will be reflecting on a recent Grand Rounds entitled The Democratization of Medicine, Open Access, Social Media, AI, Apps, and Empowering the Patient as a Future of Clinical Research. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Well, Mike, uh, you had a really interesting story that actually it sounds like it, uh, your passion started um, really uh, growing up in Oklahoma. Can you share a little bit about uh, your background and how that instilled uh, something for your future? Yeah, you know, people don't realize I'm not at all from the East Coast. I'm not quite sure how I ended up here, but uh, I was born in Oklahoma, uh, and my mother was a painter. Uh, my father was a labor negotiator for Sinclair Oil. Uh, we moved a lot uh, back and forth when I was young between Oklahoma and, believe it or not, um, the New York area. But I really spent a lot of the time in Oklahoma, and in particular in a small town called Stillwell, Oklahoma, where my grandma and granddad uh, owned an auto repair store, and I spent a lot of time uh, with them. And it really brought home to me, you know, um, the issue of access. And as I mentioned uh, in the Grand Rounds, my grandma is bored to death in an auto repair store, and she gave me a nickel and told me to go up the street and buy a, a book at the book fair, and all I could get was the letter C from the encyclopedia. So that was my internet, you know, the letter C from 1927. Uh, and uh, today, sadly, still always in the news as having the worst uh, mean life expectancy in the United States of only 57 years. And a lot of that comes down to access, access to health care, obviously, access to healthcare information. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we look forward to a world where we can level the playing field and provide much more access uh, to both healthcare and healthcare information uh, throughout the country. I'm really focused, obviously, deeply, Adrian, on dissemination, at least, of healthcare information and making it free of charge. But Healthcare information does not mean you have health care, uh, and we have a lot of work to do on that side of things. So uh, one of the things that you commented on is um, uh, open access, and uh, you shared some uh, great stories um, about um, how people uh, felt ownership of uh, even their, their slide sets or either um, the industry did. Uh, how did you uh, break the barrier? What was uh, the kind of moment that uh, shifted everything uh, to get to open access of information? Well, you know, I spent some time at UCSF where I think you spent some time, right, Adrian? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. So I think all, all people, you know, <laughs> Eric Topol, Rob Califf, uh, myself, you, Dean Kiriakis, a lot of great time was spent at UCSF. I was there during the internet bubble, during the pets.com period. And 
it's hysterical. You know, I, I decided I was going to do this kind of internet thing too. And it really started in my daughter's bedroom. I had a desk. It wasn't in a garage, but it was in the corner of my daughter's bedroom. I would watch her and I would set up a website in there called clinicaltrialresults.org. And my idea and goal was to move away from, you know, the guy who made up the slides owned the slides and to move over to sharing that information. Uh, and everyone could use your slides. Um, that may not sound like radical these days, but back then, the idea was, those are my slides. Only I can share them. And that's how people kind of uh, marketed themselves and how they valued themselves. But it seems silly. Really, the what would work best is if everyone saw your work and everyone kind of promoted your findings. So I set up this website and... Um, Gosh, it was back during the Esprit study uh, that Jimmy Chang from Duke led. Uh, that was one of the first things I released, and I was amazed. You know, 10,000 people in a day had downloaded the slides, and it was clear to me right from the outset that this was going to be a major kind of seismic change in how we shared information. So, as you know, Adrian, over the years, I've done 2,500 interviews, uh, put up slides free of charge for everyone to share. I, I really support the site myself uh, and financially support it myself. Uh, and I think it's been a great resource for everyone to kind of swap slides and, and kind of uh, keep up to date, particularly during the time of the meetings, the national and international meetings. Yeah, so the, I, I imagine there were a lot of things that came up to you um, in your days in San Francisco, perhaps even at, at Mel's Diner, uh, which was one of my, my favorite places uh, there. Oh, well, Mel's. I We used to go to Mel's all the time, and me and the boys would call it Mel's-itis. We'd come home, and we would fall asleep and take a two-hour nap after a big meal at Mel's with some shakes and some carb loading. So I'd love Mel's. Yeah, so I'm sure there are a lot of ideas all of us uh, had uh, from there. And I, I guess, you know, we never really think about this fundamental right to freedom of information and what uh, you've driven uh, through this and just getting access uh, here. Now you've uh, really been a huge um, promulgator of this uh, through social media. Uh, talk about something born out of Silicon Valley that's uh, had a, a big impact, uh, Twitter. Uh, so... Uh, how, how did that start in terms of uh, you joining Twitter and then uh, quickly getting to hundreds of thousands uh, following you? Well, you know, what's interesting is the guy in charge or the woman in charge is the person with the microphone. That was always uh, the expression. But now everybody has a microphone. And I do think social media has played a major role in leveling the playing field. I was a little skeptical. I was kind of in that one-way communication of information from a website mode. But my son, particularly my son Will, who's a physician, this was on me all the time. Dad, dad, you got to get on Twitter. You got to get on Twitter. And I thought, what is this Twitter thing? You know, it sounds like uh, the Kardashian family or something. And so I got on, and my first follower, my one and only follower for a while was Deepak Bhatt. I didn't have anything to really say. But I started to kind of dip my toe in, and then things really changed when 
the Boston Marathon took place where the bombing happened. And my son, um, believe it or not, played semi-pro football while in medical school and also ran the marathon while in medical school. And, you know, he would get done with the marathon and go back to class. And he texted me, quote, I'm okay. And I wrote back, I said, well, you must be tired. And he said, no, dad, a bomb just went off at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. I crossed the finish line about 10 minutes ago. And we have a place downtown where he lives and my son Mikey lived um, right literally around the corner from where the bombing occurred. And it really kind of shook the house. So I thought, wow, you know, I started looking on Twitter what was going on and really all the information that I was getting about the bombing was coming from Twitter. And I was unfortunately on call that day and uh, went down to the ER to help with vascular issues, uh, shock and everything else. I got to say it was unlike any scene I'd ever seen. I mean, I had been an ER physician back in the days when you could be an ER physician with an internal medicine license uh, at the Brigham. That's where I would moonlight. And this was not like that. This was a, a scene like out of a, a war movie, people with missing arms and limbs. And I began to tweet about it, obviously without pictures, without names, uh, but just begin to describe the waves of patients coming and what I was seeing. And, you know, suddenly my following just exploded, you know, using the hashtag Boston Strong. Next thing you knew, I was getting calls from news agencies all over the world, you know, asking to kind of interview me to describe the scene. And that was the first kind of bump in my following. And it became very clear to me, wow, this is a very, very powerful tool. And I also said, you know, if you have a loved one and you want to know if they're here in our emergency room, call one of these two numbers. And I, I worked with these, the administrators to set up hotlines so people could call in and see if their family member was there. And then I said, you know, also use the hashtag, uh, I'm okay. And that became uh, popular, too, on uh, Twitter. So um, that was the first moment. The second moment was during the Ebola crisis. And um, as you know, Adrian, I run an open source, open access textbook called Wikidoc. And we began to put up enormous amounts of content day by day based upon what was going on with the Ebola crisis. And uh, I would tweet out several times a day what was happening. And that was the kind of second huge bump in following. The most amazing thing was I got asked to come to a UN meeting on um, communicating about Ebola and Ebola awareness. So, again, it was another lesson for me that this is going to be a very, very powerful tool in immediately getting information out about what is going on uh, in healthcare and healthcare crises in particular. I also do a lot related to kind of art and people kind of like that a lot. And I think that's important. You know, I think people always say, oh, you need to have your um, site be professional. Well, I'm a professional artist, so why can't I do both? <laughs> and, you know, so I, I think people want to see physicians as human and we shouldn't avoid being human I do stay away from politics and religion and things like that. I never say anything uh, about politics or try to avoid it if at all possible. 
And I think there's been excessive politicization of everything that's going on right now in the healthcare crisis. So I try to avoid that and try and get people to be more unified and seek consensus. But it's clear it's going to be here to stay. People aren't going to give their microphones back. Uh, and this has really revolutionized things. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, it's a good reminder that um, uh, we actually um, need to consider uh, this, uh, the field of human medicine and uh, making sure the humanistic uh, parts of this um, are seen, uh, such as art and culture uh, here. Well, I think also, Adrian, people want more than information. They want to know the context of that information. They want to know what you know you think and what I think about the information. They're looking for their healthcare providers to tell them what the truth is. And we need the truth now more than ever. And that we're really there to be truth tellers and to hold other people in check. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so I think you've noted that uh, while uh, social media gives everyone a, a mic, um, there can also be, the, and the benefits uh, for that has been the rapid dissemination of information. But then there are also some risks, uh, which is uh, misinformation or disinformation. Uh, what's the role of uh, clinicians uh, in this new world um, to help um, patients or people with that? Well, we didn't sign up for it, but I think our job is to be the anti-viral agent of combating disinformation or misinformation. Uh, yes, we are healthcare professionals, but it extends beyond just providing care. I think we have an expanded role now in being healthcare educators, and um, it's a big responsibility. We can't just say, well, it's not my job, you know, it's horrible that there's this disinformation, but it's important that all of us speak up and correct that disinformation and that misinformation. Uh, I know I do, I know you do, Adrian, and uh, I, I think it's really now one of our expanded roles as healthcare professionals. It certainly seems like this needs to be incorporated into the curriculum for medical school and other um, healthcare um, uh, schools. Uh, so people actually take advantage of this uh, new way uh, for, of getting information or education to patients and other clinicians. Well, I think if medical schools, hospitals, and other educational entities, if they ignore it, they ignore it at their own peril. I think, you know, people really should get credit for the impact that they're making. I'm not quite sure how you quantitate that yet, uh, but they do. They should. They really should. I think it's a, a new metric that needs to be integrated into the promotion process, and uh, it's up to institutions to figure that out. I hope they do soon. Now, uh, let's uh, talk about uh, the GIGA trial. So uh, you see that as now um, being enabled uh, through lots of different features. Uh, what's that like? Well, you know, we had great visions of doing a trial of 180,000 patients and uh, a randomized trial. But then the pandemic hit, and it's really uh, taken a whack out of enrollment. But I think what we're learning is that you can do a virtual trial. You can cut out a lot of the bricks and mortar and do these kinds of trials for 1% of the usual cost. 40% of the cost of these trials, as you know all too well, Adrian, is the cost of human beings 
monitors going out and checking every single thing that it matches what's in the electronic health record, something they call monitoring, uh, that's, we've gotten rid of that. Um, we're using insurance claims data to see if someone had an adverse event. We're saving money by randomizing people over an app using a central IRB process. We're using a lot of media to advertise the trial. Of course, doctors and nurses can refer a patient into the study, but they don't have to do the work of consenting them. They can also follow them. But as I said before, we're cutting way down on the cost by managing so much of the trial virtually and electronically. And while we may come up short of our enrollment, what we're not coming up short on is learning how to get the job done and do it all virtually. I think one of the things we've learned, which we're actually quite surprised by, is how sticky this is. You know, we thought, oh my gosh, people are going to stop participating virtually and putting information into the app after six months. But we're seeing people continue to stay very engaged uh, throughout the process. They're not dropping off as we would have thought. So, <clears throat> again, I think the importance of this is not the question or the answer. The importance of this is the new way we're going to make our way forward, which is through electronics, apps, and virtual trials rather than bricks and mortar. We just can't afford to spend a billion dollars every time we want to ask a question. That's terrific. Well, um, Mike, it, it really has uh, been a fascinating um, discussion here on our podcast and talking about lots of different things, uh, ultimately trying to get um, better information um, more widely to everyone and having everyone participate in that, including um, the large clinical trials. So, Mike, uh, thanks for spending time with us on this podcast. Well, Adrian, thanks for having me on. It's been great collaborating with you over several decades. You're doing great stuff, and I look forward to our continued and expanded and strengthened uh, partnership. Absolutely. And uh, everyone, uh, thanks for joining uh, this uh, podcast. Uh, please join us for our next podcast where we continue to highlight fascinating and informative changes in the research world. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website, and we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. <music>